there's three things. First is content because of course it's, you know, it's kind of self-evident, right? But if you do not share your ideas publicly, no one will know what your ideas are. So you, you have to do that. And yet, you know, so many people fail to. Um, number two is social proof because you need some kind of publicly demonstrable credibility so that people are willing to even listen to you in the first place. And then number three is your network. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And uh, we're a dialogue podcast, the opposite of a traditional interview. And we aim to celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. We're sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, as a listener to this podcast, you will have the opportunity to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com slash different. On this episode, the incredible Dory Clark. The New York Times says, quote, Dory Clark is an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives, end quote. She's an adjunct professor at Duke University, a multi-time best-selling author, and her book Stand Out was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine, and she's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. We have a great conversation. I really like this gal. Um, in a world of people who espouse to be experts at um, self-help, entrepreneurship, branding, and so forth, uh, many of those people are full of crapola. She is a giant um, because she is not. She's fantastic. And we have a great conversation that I'm, I know you're gonna love. If you're a solopreneur or thinking about going solo, you're going to take pages of notes as you listen to this conversation with Dory. And even if you're not, I think you're going to love this discussion. We talk about things like how to reinvent yourself, how to proactively design your identity. You know, for some people, the, the fact that or the, just the idea that you could design yourself or redesign or reinvent yourself is a radical one. And she, she puts us in touch with how to do that. Uh, we talk about why everyone should think about themselves as an entrepreneur, why investing in yourself is so critical, why when we take on new things, giving ourselves a long runway is something incredibly powerful, and a whole lot more. Go to Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and check out the show notes for this episode. You'll see the key takeaways, and you'll learn more about Dory's amazing background and how to find her and her books. Now, hey-ho. Let's go. Yeah, so, uh, you know, if, if you know what the direction is that you are reinventing toward, um, which, of course, it's a, a different story if it's like, how do you figure it out? Uh, but let's assume that you know the direction that you are heading toward. Then there's there's a few steps. And you know, obviously, we can we can go into lots of depth about this if you want. But the, the basic idea that I would say is um, there's a couple of things that are important to keep in mind. One, which is kind of ironic and I think a little upsetting to people sometimes, although it makes sense if you think about it, is that ironically in the reinvention journey, oftentimes the people who are closest to you are going to be the least supportive initially. You might, you know, think like, isn't oh, that, isn't you know, that incredible? Or, yeah. Yeah. Like somehow they're more tied to who you've been than maybe you are. Yeah. It, 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 it's extremely ironic, but you know, they all, I mean, everybody's trying to come from a good place, right? They're like, well, but have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? Like they, they think, that maybe you're being rash or, you know, they're being the devil's advocate that's helping you see the thing that you missed somehow. Or maybe they're trying to protect you, right? They sort of don't want you to go forward because they don't want you to fail or lose a lot of money or go through whatever hardship or we, we have a term around here we call losery <laughs> that you're going to experience, try to make losing and failure sound more fun than it is. But, you know, whenever we embark on a reinvention or anything new, by definition, there's going to be a lot of losery. Right. So I guess some of the, you know, some folks have good intentions. I think some folks have pretty shitty intentions sometimes, but regardless of intention, 
I, it is fascinating that sometimes some of the people closest to us can be the least supportive, even if they even if they don't mean to be. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things that's important to keep in mind with your reinvention is I think a lot of people think, okay, well, I'm going to develop this strategy to kind of win over the outside world. But actually, before you do that, it's a lot of it is like winning over the internal team. Um, you, you have to you have to think about that and develop a strategy for it so that they understand, okay, it's not a fad. You really are serious about it. You really are competent to do it and, and sort of demonstrate to them that, that you're going to stick with it and that you're able to do a good job because otherwise they're kind of going to make your life a little hellish as you're doing it. The irony is that the outside people often are much more supportive because they don't have anything at stake. Like if yeah. you, if, if they meet you at a cocktail party and you're like, hi, I'm Christopher. I'm a, you know, I'm a podcaster. They're going to be like, oh, okay, fantastic, Christopher. Tell me about that. Right. You know, I mean, they don't care. It doesn't matter like that you're a podcaster and not a CMO or a podcaster and not a whatever, whatever. Um, so, so I, I think that's, that's one of the, the interesting things that I've discovered in the course of, of studying reinvention the other thing and this may be a bit of a tangent but um does moving to a different location help sometimes you know because I, I see people that maybe they move across the country east coast west coast or maybe to even a new country or whatever it is and sort of uh when you go to a new place you can be a new person yeah yeah it's uh you know we were talking a little bit earlier about um one of the things in my background was I have a graduate degree in theology. And uh, of course, as they, as they said back in the Bible, uh, you are, you are never a prophet in your homeland. And I think that uh, Isn't that, that has funny? a lot of resonance. And as a consultant or an advisor or a speaker, you're always more expensive the further you are from your home, right? <laughs> I always used to find that. The first time I was a kind of a consultant and an independent, you know, what today we call youpreneur or solopreneur, I was still living in uh, Toronto, Canada, and I would fly into Michigan or Dallas or wherever it was I was going to do, do whatever gig I was doing. And when you walk in the room and you, you're this person from Toronto walking into the room in Dallas, there is this aura of, well, shit, if they flew this idiot from Toronto, he, he must be important, Right. Totally, totally. And yeah, the, the people around you, I mean, they're, they just, they're used to thinking of you in a, in a certain way. And it's very hard for people to readjust their, uh, their expectations. I mean, it's the same principle at play. I mean, we see it all the time. Um, studies have shown that, and you know, this is kind of wildly unfair, but external hires that are hired into a company almost always make more money Isn't than that people crazy? Who are promoted in, internally. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and, and they're more likely to fail because they don't understand the culture. They don't, they don't know how to really do it in this particular place. And yet they are valued more by the marketplace. Uh, you know, I think you've hit on something incredibly important because it's so easy, you know, you, you think about maybe an employee who's been with a company for five years who maybe starts in a more junior or maybe more mid-level position, but they're a superstar and they take on more responsibility and, you know, they, they rise a little bit. But to your point, there's, and this, this isn't true in um, some companies, but I think it's probably true in most, they're still going to see that person as that junior person. As opposed to, okay, maybe when they started, they were 30, but now they're 35 and they're a young, you know, very serious executive. Whereas if they change companies, they sort of come in that way. And I've often thought the most legendary companies are willing to go on that, to use your term, that reinvention. This word's overused. I, we got to get a better word for journey because it almost makes me throw up in my mouth when I say it. But, but you know, as you progress in your in your career, it's it's so critical, particularly for leadership. I always tried to do this was to look at who the person is today, to pay them for who they are today, not who they were three years ago or five years ago or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I think that's right on. And, in, you know, I give a lot of uh, talks and workshops and whatever around personal branding. I was uh, just at a law firm a couple of weeks ago talking to them. And, you know, this is this is especially true for any company where people spend a long time because, yeah, you, you enter as one person and you're a very different person. I mean, you know, you, you get these situations where, you know, they 
they'll ask somebody, you know, oh, so what do you what do you think of Jenny? Oh, she's she's so sweet. She's such an eager little go getter. She's she's amazing. And like, meanwhile, she's like forty two now. <laughs> well, yeah, like, and you know, I have found interestingly as I have progressed in life, one of the greatest joys is I know a lot of those Jennies who are now senior executives, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and there's nothing more fun for me than to reconnect with somebody I worked with 15 years ago, 20 years ago, who was a more junior person, but a, you know, an up and comer, you could tell back then. And now they're a CEO of a venture back company, or they've written a great book or what, you know, they've, they've, they've clearly achieved something legendary. And you look back and like, I just, I love that. And the degree to which I could help with, you know, even a small piece of that, I think is one of the greatest things you can do in your career. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. That's, that's lovely. I, I agree. It's really fun to be able to do that. And in fact, um, Adam Grant has written about uh, a concept that gets uh, talked about a little, a little bit less. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, of course, popularized the, uh, the strength of weak ties uh, in, um, in his books, like the tipping point, but another category besides strong ties or weak ties is what's known as dormant ties. And those can actually be even the most powerful because they, you know, whatever, you were strong at one time, but then you've gone off in completely separate directions. And this person, while you basically weren't paying attention, may well have emerged into something very interesting or, you know, very useful. And you still, you know, you can be like, oh, hey, and, and they're, it's not like you have to start the relationship from scratch. They're happy to see you yes. 10 or 20 years later and you can, you can get back into it. The amazing thing about that. So you're hitting on something that I've had a profound personal experience with over the last couple of years, particularly since starting the podcast, which is I had no idea how good my Rolodex was because, you know, I never n- needed it for much or I, n- not like I do today. And to your point, I have reconnected with people that I haven't talked to for years, in some case, five years, in some case, 10 years, in some case, even more. And I have been stunned to find out that there is dormant goodwill. And I also, not just uh, someone else towards me, uh, one of a recent example, we had um, Dennis O'Malley on the podcast not long ago, and he's the CEO of the largest integrated pot dispensary in the United States. They're in San Jose, California. They're called Calivo. And I get this email from um, one of his PR folks pitching him to come on the podcast. And I, and I look at the name and I'm like, can this be the same guy that I knew back, back in the day? He was a sales leader at Gartner when I was a CMO and I was his customer. Mm. And we had some pretty tough negotiations. <laughs> anyway, so I fire her an email back and I said, um, and so I Google around, I find out sure enough, it's the same guy. I email her back and I said, does Dennis have any idea you're reaching out to me? And she said, no, you know, we just know you've got this podcast and we're trying to, I said, well, let them know that you are, and I would love to have him on. And, and so this is a great example of reinvention. You know, he was a great sales leader in, in the technology research world. And today he's a CEO and clearly one of the hottest industries in the world and he's killing it. And so, um, I guess my point is not only is it wonderful to discover dormant, uh, sort of positive connection or positive thoughts and relation about yourself, but it's even fun when it, it, it's you whose dormant sort of positive thoughts about someone else gets rekindled. Yes, yes. In both cases, it's it's really nice. And so if I'm embarking on a reinvention path, Dory, is that something I need to then look for? You mentioned the people who may not support me, but also people who, who might support me. And so what I hear you saying is kind of who who I'm surrounding myself with uh, as I begin this reinvention really does matter. It does. And I think the other key component that's important to to think about for this as well is essentially what kind of proof, I say in air quotes, you can muster to support your new identity. And what I mean by that is that because, you know, unfortunately, people are a little skeptical and, you know, oh, Christopher, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. Can you really do that? Will you be good at that? Blah, 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 blah. You know, are you, you know, next year, are you still going to be interested in that? And so you really have to just hammer it home that like, no, I'm serious about this. Yes, I can do this. And so one of the 
best ways to do it, I believe, is, and my research bears this out, I write about it a lot in my book, Stand Out, um, is the importance of creating content around your new subject area. So it could be starting a podcast about it, it could be blogging, you know, whatever it is, it could be starting a, a YouTube channel talking about it, but it's a way of simultaneously demonstrating your expertise so that people can say, oh, wait, actually, he is pretty smart about this new, this new thing he's talking about. Number two, it enables you to have a networking vehicle. You can actually invite people on your podcast, and all of a sudden, you're meeting lots of new people in your industry. And number three, it allows you to create these sort of sustained reminders. Because if you tell somebody once, you know, hey, I'm changing over and I'm doing blah, 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 they are going to forget. It's a big deal to you. It's kind of not a big deal to them. So you need to keep hitting them and reminding them that you're doing this thing. And content allows you to do that. Yeah. So I have a bunch of content questions for you. But before we go there, um, as you started that, one of the things that struck me, Dory, is when we're embarking on something new that is a reinvention, and particularly, you know, some of us do that after you know, many years of doing one thing, we then for whatever reason embark on another thing. And I'm forever fascinated with how an individual summons the courage to stand in the face of no evidence that they can do something and yet somehow take that first step and then begin persevering and doing that. And so what coaching would you give me to stand in the face of no evidence to go embark on something that you know, maybe my background doesn't suggest I have any business doing. <laughs> well, one of the best pieces of advice that I can offer, Christopher, is to have a long runway. <laughs> I think that the, the thing that puts a lot of pressure on people's reinvention is that so much of the cultural narrative is about, oh, you just, you take a leap, you make a bold move, you jump off a cliff, and, and then, you know, suddenly you're doing this thing and, you know, fall and the net will appear. And, you know, maybe is the answer, but it also might not. And that could be really, really bad if you have a mortgage or you have responsibilities. And so I almost never advise people to do that. Instead, the longer the timeline you're operating under, the more you can actually be kind of sane and sensible and pace yourself. Because in the beginning, odds are you're probably not going to be that good. You're still learning. You're still trying to figure it out. But you can get the kinks worked out while you have your day job and your regular salary and whatever. And over time, you can you know, sort of shift the percentages. One of my favorite stories from my book, Reinventing You, is about this woman named Patricia Fripp, who year for many years now has been a very well-known and successful uh, professional speaker on the speaking circuit. But the way that she started out, I was so fascinated by this. Her first career was as a hairdresser and she was this hairdresser and she started kind of getting into the business world because she worked in downtown San Francisco and she cut all these businessmen's hair and she was very well-spoken and they, you know, she, she had, a pretty good sales sensibility about herself. And she would talk with them and she would really engage. She'd ask them all kinds of questions about their business. And they were so impressed. They're like, Patricia, you're great. You know, I should bring you in to talk to my staff. And and so they did. But, you know, clearly that's not going to pay the bills. They might give her a little tiny honorarium. But she discovered she really loved professional speaking. And so she had a 10-year lease on her salon. And she's like, you know what? After, you know, that's my, that's my runway right there. And so for 10 years, she did speaking on the side and any money that she made from it, she would reinvest into the business. She would reinvest into lessons to become a better speaker, you know, videos, website, all the things she needed. And at the end of the 10 years, she locked the door on her salon. She walked away and she had, it was the easiest transition in the world because over that time she had but more she than took made a up decade her salary. To do it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You know, this is one of the things I try to tell myself all the time and I try to tell entrepreneurs and friends that, you know, uh, and colleagues, if it's worthwhile, it's going to take a while. Yeah. And I love what you said about a long runway, you know, and I think if, if you look at it, any entrepreneurial endeavor, if you look at whether you're a venture backed startup in Silicon Valley or, you know, it, you're a solopreneur or youpreneur, it's probably going to take 10 years. And it doesn't mean it's going to take 10 years to make any money, but right. 
it, it, there's something magical about this six to ten year window where things really um, start to tip. And I'm always amazed how many people tap out early. I read recently, and I, I don't know if this is true, but the average there's over 600,000 podcasts, mm-hmm. and the average podcast only have seven episodes. Yeah, because people yeah. look at their download numbers, and you know, if you take your mom out, there's four other listeners, and they get crushed by it, and they just stop. No, it's 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 a very powerful statistic, and in fact, you might even have uh, the more updated number because I uh, I cite a similar statistic in my book, which came out about a year ago. Um, it was a study by a guy named Josh Marshall who did a ten-year longitudinal study of podcasts from 2005 to 2015, which basically showed exactly that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I will often when I'm giving a talk cite that as uh, I, I mean I consider it. V- probably the most telling statistic in in the world because it's not a statistic about podcasts it's a statistic about life because people look at the huge number of you know of competition around them and they're like oh my god it's not even worth starting it's not even worth trying there's so much competition but in the end you're not competing against 200,000 people or 600,000 people you're competing against like 2,000 or 200 because literally almost everyone has quit. And if you can simply persevere, you're already far ahead of the pack. And if you can persevere and actually be pretty good, well then, damn, you're you're actually almost certainly going to do pretty well for yourself one way or another. Yeah. You also said you also said something uh, in that story about Patricia that I think is super important. Uh, for some reason, some people seem to think if I'm going to go do this, this reinvent myself, um, that I need to stop doing what I was doing and do this thing exclusively. Now, you know, of course, if, if, if you can apply yourself to one thing versus two things, great. But we don't have to commit to a, a life of economic pain and struggle here, right? I mean, you can figure out how to have a hobby and maybe it just is a hobby. And then maybe the hobby turns into a side hustle with some economics around it. And then maybe the side hustle with economics turns into your new career and you can stop doing your old thing and do your new thing. But it's interesting to me how many people seem to think it's binary that to be successful, I need to completely stop making money, quit my job and then, you know, go into being a blogger or whatever it is, the thing they want to go do, um, as opposed to what you described that um, Patricia did. And so how, how do you think about sort of if I have one foot in my old world and one foot in my new world, how should I think about that? Yeah, I think a lot of people fixate on on that, exactly what you're talking about, Christopher, because in some ways it's it's more an identity thing than anything. You know, they they wanna they wanna be this new thing and they feel like they can't really be the new thing until they let go of the old thing. But I I, I feel like that's not necessarily the the most helpful way to look at it. I mean Obviously, you know, with Patricia Fripp, I I like it because it's sort of an extreme example. Um, But what I like about it is that she completely de-risked it. Like if you, people think reinvention in some ways has to be risky. It doesn't. If the timeline is long enough and you are methodical enough, it it has no risk. You you have taken it out of the equation. But if if 10 years sounds like way too long, like, no, I can't possibly do that. No problem. Shorten the time frame. Just realize, okay, there's a little bit more risk. Just, you know, it, it increases depending on what the, what the horizon is. And also the other factors, you know, I, I made a very deliberate decision for myself when I started my business. I bought a condo uh, just before launching my business. And I was not sure how much money I would make in my business. take on a bunch of debt before you start a business, right? (laughs) Well, actually my rationale, I was, I was very clear eyed about it. I knew that in getting a mortgage, you know, they usually require like two or three years of, uh, you know, your, your tax returns in order to do it. And I, I didn't know how much money I was going to be making. And I thought, all right, I might have these kind of like really patchy tax returns for a while. And I was worried that if I didn't buy a house, then that it might be hard for me to buy a house uh, for several years thereafter until I kind of had, had gotten sea legs on my business. But so what I did, very, you know, very specifically, was I bought a place. It was a really nice condo, but it was in a let's uh, let's 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 use the air quotes again. It was in an emerging neighborhood, and I, I love the way realtors talk. I remember the <laughs> first time I heard a realtor say. 
Well, as you can see, uh, this place has a lot of deferred maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So so you had a nice place, but in an up and coming neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. But, but I, I was willing to make that trade because it was something that I, I basically knew I could afford no matter what. And that was very powerful. This is another thing that I like to tell people if they're, if they're in the midst of a reinvention that may involve some kind of financial uncertainty, um, you, you have to be strategic about, about money because the problem, you know, it's, it's not a problem to, to earn less money. It only is a problem based on the relative things that you have to pay for. And people have, you know, they get themselves into these situations, these kind of golden handcuff situations where they've bought an expensive place, they're used to this quality of life, and they are not willing to make any changes in it. And then it's like, all right, well, you know, you can't, you, if, if you're not willing to tweak that factor, then it makes it a heck of a lot harder to tweak the other one. But for me, you know, I lived for a decade in, in this neighborhood. I mean, it was sweet. It was nice. It was a great place. But let me tell you, none of my friends had ever been to this neighborhood before I moved in. It was not the kind of place they were hanging out. It was not like a super yuppie neighborhood. Uh, in fact, the city's largest, uh, my, my, on my street, across the street from my house, it was the city's largest heroin bust in the history of the city was well, directly across the street. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? What it enabled me to do was to feel peace at night being an yes. entrepreneur because I did not ever have to take on a client I didn't want to take on. I didn't have to uh, sweat the way people sometimes do because when you need money desperately, it makes you a different person. You make terrible choices sometimes yes. Yes. and I never wanted to be in that position. I would much rather live across from a heroin den. One soul-sucking client can really be crushing. That's right. That's right. I was able to build my business from a place where I never needed a client. And I, and I think that that is really critical because if, if a prospective client senses some kind of need, they are just going to run. Nobody wants that. Not in a relationship, not in a business relationship. You have to come from a place of strength and having your financial house in order uh, enables you to do it. Yeah, I think you you're on a point that um, a lot of people miss, right? the the um, The person we want to be with is somebody who has options, right? N- nobody wants to hire a a consultant, a guru, a speaker, an expert um, who has no clients, right? Yeah. We all there, there's a weird thing in the human psyche, right? If there's a line outside the restaurant, we think, well, that must be a good restaurant. And if we go to a restaurant, maybe you and I are planning to go to dinner tonight, and we show up at that restaurant and there's only a few people there and it's sort of empty. One of, one of us is apt to look at the other and go, you know, should we eat here, right? It, and so you can't give, acro- you can't give up that, or you give across that vibe that um, you need this desperately. The, 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 the client always needs to feel like they need you more than you need them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And yeah, if you're, if you're just chasing money, it's the other problem is there's a little bit of an inverse relationship um, between the effort that you can expend on uh, marketing and on sales. And what I mean by that, you know, I'm defining sales as like chasing a client in the here and now. And marketing, of course, you know, as a former CMO, uh, it's it's about the long game. And if you ever want to lift yourself to a higher tier of clients or a higher echelon, you know, we're talking about branding, um, you have to make those long-term investments. And you, you need a little bit of, of room. You need a little bit of bandwidth to be able to do it, to do the thing now that is not going to pay off at all tomorrow, yeah. but will will pay off in two years. And so if you think about sort of uh, marketing is getting the world to come to you and sales is you kind of going to the world, um, is content the key thing you think for um, you know, small business, youpreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs, is that the primary mechanism or, or how should I think about sort of how to position myself, differentiate myself? Content is very important. Um, I actually, uh, a couple of years ago, 
it's through through writing my book Stand Out and then developing an online course based on it, which is called Recognized Expert, I crystallized a methodology which I has been very impactful for me and a lot of the people that I work with in terms of really identifying what are the levers that enable you to, to stand out and build that kind of distinct expert identity. And so there's, there's three things. First is content, because of course it's, you know, it's kind of self-evident, right? But if you do not share your ideas publicly, no one will know what your ideas are. So you, you have to do that. And yet, you know, so many people fail to. Um, number two is social proof because you need some kind of publicly demonstrable credibility so that people are willing to even listen to you in the first place. And then number three is your network because, uh, you know, basically if, if you're doing all these things in a vacuum and you don't, you don't know the people in your industry who can help you magnify your voice if somebody goes to the leading lights in the industry and they say, oh, hey, how's, how's Christopher? And they're like, who the fuck is Christopher? <laughs> it's, it's not very convincing. Not good. <laughs> yeah. So you, need to, so you need to have those three things, the social proof, the content, and the network to, to really become a recognized expert. It's so funny you say that because that's how we met, right? Yes. So network, Eddie Yoon, connects us. And at least, um, and you could tell me about your relationship with Eddie. I'm curious about that. Uh, for me, if Eddie introduces me to somebody and says, I think she should come on your podcast, I'm kind of done. I mean, I'm still <laughs> going to Google you and all yeah. that kind of stuff and make sure, but I respect and admire him so much. And we have collaborated on a number of things and he's been on the podcast and he helped me so much with both my books and, and so forth and so on that, you know, unless something really weird were to show up in a Google search around your name, uh, I, I'm pretty much done. And then the social proof, this is one where I think a lot of people don't understand. Um, uh, my friend Isaac Morehouse, who's the founder of this awesome um, company called Praxis that helps launch young people into their careers. He says, what happens after somebody Googles you is the most important thing today. And it's amazing to me how many people don't get that. Yeah. And so, yeah. so how do I, you know, there's lots been said and written about networking. I don't know that we have to touch that unless, unless you feel like you want to, but I, I am curious. So, so I create great content and, but in a world where everybody's trying to great, create great content and, and use that as a mechanism, how do I stand out in a way in particular that um, delivers the social proof that I'm trying to build? Well, one, I can, I can tell you first, Christopher, about how I did it. And uh, there may be, you know, some, uh, some applicable lessons, I, I, I think. Um, and again, this was something that I, I did in, in many ways without fully understanding the mechanism. And it was really only later that I, that I crystallized it into a methodology that, uh, that now other people have been able to follow with, with good success. But the basic idea is that, Content creation in and of itself is helpful, right? Like if you're writing for your own blog, you're writing, you know, on LinkedIn or something like that, that's great because you're sharpening your ideas, you're getting them out there. Some people, the people who already know you are seeing it, which is great. If a customer says, oh, I'm having a problem with this, you can be like, hey, I wrote a piece, you know, here, let me send it to you. All that's great. But you add this extra layer, this extra just kind of oomph to it. If, in addition to all of those things, you write that piece for a publication that people have already heard of, because that way it's like, oh, well, if Christopher is good enough for Forbes, if Christopher is good enough for the Harvard Business Review, if Christopher is good enough for the Atlantic, then he is good enough for me. Yes. And so the way so that I- So you borrow their brand. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a reflected glory, you know, in, in yeah. many ways. But so for me, uh, specifically- my goal early on was to get a book published and, you know, I, I, I wrote these proposals and basically no one wanted them because I wasn't, I wasn't famous enough. And so I had to go back to square one and they were like, well, you know, you need to build a platform. And so I tried to start doing that by blogging and it, it, was, it was really through very, very methodical blogging uh, that I was able to get my first uh, book contract. It was um, 
I, I wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review called How to Reinvent Your Personal Brand. And that piece became popular. And so HBR reached out and said, well, hey, would you expand this for the magazine? And I did. And then when it got expanded for the magazine, then literary agents, multiple literary agents reached out and said, hey, have you thought of turning this into a book? Yes. And I was like, oh, I guess this is how it's supposed to work. This is how it's supposed to work. Yeah, isn't it interesting? And you said something I think a lot of uh, people don't get. I certainly didn't know this anywhere near the way I do today as uh, as I was working on my first book, that you need to build a platform. It's very, very, you know, you think about speakers. Uh, I, I don't care how good you are as a speaker. If you talk to a speaker's bureau, um, they, they are not interested in you unless you have a platform. And to your point, publishers, uh, was it, it was a um, Harvard Business Press, wasn't it? That yes. published your book? Correct, yes. Yeah, like you have to have some shit together to get those people to publish your book, right? You have to have demonstrable, to your point, blogs and articles and, and the like, and you have to show some kind of an audience. And it's interesting in the music world today, I, I think this is, and I'm not an expert, but I think this is pretty much the case. If you're an artist or a band or what have you, and you don't have a YouTube following or you ha don't have downloads on iTunes, on your, there's no record company that's going to hire you. You have to be, um, you have to build your own platform. Yeah, it's, it's really true. I mean, even, you know, I mean, name almost any art form, comedy, for instance, uh, you know, there's a lot of examples of comedians, you know, like, like the, the gals from Broad City, for instance, who, uh, who, who really kind of just did their own thing on, on YouTube. And then the, the, you know, now the, the TV networks can essentially sit back and let YouTube be the farm team for them. They're just like, all right, what's good on YouTube? Oh, well, it already worked there. I'll just call them up to the majors. You know, they, these, anybody who has these kind of legacy media businesses, all they want to do now is de-risk themselves. And That's the right. internet is the way they do it. That's right. And it's interesting, uh, my buddy Hal Elrod, who wrote the Miracle Morning series, um, he's got a new book coming out and he self-published the Miracle Morning and all of those books. And he had shunned traditional publishing. We can talk about why if you care, but, um, but his new book is uh, from a top tier publisher. And um, he put himself in a position where, to your point, Dory, they were falling all over him and he got, you know, I shouldn't say, but he got a stunning advance. That's great. <laughs> As That's he great. deserves. But yes. he did it because he self-published and he got the thing going and he got in the Miracle Mornings become this huge movement and, and so forth. And so he, he made himself undeniable. And so I guess that gets me to a question, which is, okay, some of these things are now becoming a little better understood and more people are trying them. And so in a world where there's so many people trying to do the kinds of things you and I are talking about, um, what, what do I do? Whether it's to stand out and, and sort of position myself to how do I niche down and brand myself the right way? And also from I'm curious from a distribution perspective, you know, social and uh, what's the mix of things that you do to begin to get to that, uh, you know, the tipping point that you hit a long time ago? Well, I think I think a lot of it, honestly, is is really just measured in terms of persistence and keeping going with it. I mean, uh, we all know, right? Oh, it it takes a long time, but I think that people don't necessarily know literally what is meant by that. I, I will tell you what I mean by that, and I'd be curious what you think. Uh, but what I discovered, I mean, I started blogging heavily uh, in around 2010 and, uh, and, and heavily, heavily in like 2012. And I would say that it took between two and three years of very regular, you know, I'd say weekly, let's say, um, blogging to, so between two and three years of weekly blogging to see any discernible result. And then it took between, let's say, three and five years to start seeing results. And then it took, after year five, uh, that is when I've started to see marked results. Uh, but that's, that's the arc. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very much like, 
any, you know, if you read book, like Peter Diamandis's books about exponential technology, it's like, you know, for, for 20 years, everybody thinks that artificial intelligence or 3D printing or uh, self-driving cars, everybody thinks they're shit because for 20 years, it's like no growth, no growth, no growth to the naked eye. But of course, meanwhile, it's been exponential growth. It's just starting very, very, very small. And then all of a sudden, it hits this tipping point, and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? And that is very much what it's like to build your brand. You know, it reminds me of this old Bill Gates quote, and I may get it a little bit wrong, but I'll, I'll get it directionally right. He said something like, uh, people overestimate the impact of a new technology in the short term and underestimate the impact of a new technology in the long term. Totally. And I, I think about that all the time. You know, and I and you, you're seeing it today where um, I remember, for example, when the genome was mapped, when Craig Venter mapped the genome, I thought, OK, all this stuff's going to come and we're going to recompile the code of the human beings and we're going to cure cancer. And, and then I can remember thinking around, I don't know, maybe, you know, that was what, 97, 98, 99, sort of in that time frame. And I remember by sort of 2005, 2008 thinking, fucking hey it's been a while since we mapped the genome and like not much is going on and of yeah, course like yeah cancer's still a thing come on craig what's up what's up you fucking wanker right like <laughs> but now of course today you know last year for christmas my sister-in-law gave me a 23 and me and so for Ooh, like what are you christopher what did you find out i didn't use it oh yeah, no, I. There's not a chance those those people can go fuck themselves. But, <laughs> and look, I don't. Have you done it? Oh, I have. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're all selling my data everywhere. But I really wanted well, see, to doesn't know. That, I it doesn't was so that doesn't that spook you out though? That's the thing that freaks me out. Is they now own your genome, but you got over that. I. What are they gonna do? Make a Dory clone? I mean, you know, like I. I. I mean, I. I'm not. I'm not that worried about it. I don't. I don't know. Um, there, there may be, I mean, you know, I guess the, the sort of immediate thing is where they sell it to health companies and would health companies discriminate, that kind of thing. Yep, um, I'm sure I they mean, would yeah, <laughs> on both course, fronts. Right? Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, there's, there's a lot of things that I am paranoid about, but I'm not especially paranoid about that for whatever reason. Interesting. And uh, just out of curiosity, what did you discover? Uh, so I, so yeah, there's just like some interesting quirks. So for instance, um, my, I mean, b basically what I discovered is, uh, you know, one could probably extrapolate, which is that I'm like, you know, not 98% European, but it's so interesting because they can be very precise. They're like, well, it's, it's like 25% English and Irish. It's tw it's 20% French and German. And meanwhile, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't have any French and German relatives, which is kind of the, the weird part. So I thought there was going to be like a big Italian thing and then there wasn't. So, so now it's kind of interesting, like, okay, is somebody not, ex is the lineage not exactly what we thought or, or is it lying? possible? <laughs> yeah. Is somebody lying or is it possible that like- Did Somebody fool around with a lot of Germans a few generations ago and not want anyone to know. <laughs> That's right. Or like my, my Italian great grandfather, like, is it possible that somehow his family was like from France or Germany and then they came to Italy? Like, I don't know. It kind of raises some interesting questions, but I, I do find it fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of this, what you're saying is, Hey, you got to stick to it. You got to be consistent. Um, and you got to realize that a lot of other people who are maybe competing with you aren't going to do those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of executive coaching around this, you know, and uh, it's interesting because a lot of the places where I see clients struggle is every time we, we meet, you know, like every two weeks or whatever, they're like, so what's the new thing? What's the new strategy? Should I launch a podcast? Should I do this? Should I do that? And it's like, no, do the thing. Right. Do the thing we talked about. Right. And it's just like not what they want to hear because it's boring. But it is through doing boring things that you succeed wildly. <laughs> uh, that's so true. Um, and then what are the other things that I should keep in mind as I go on my kind of reinvention, entrepreneurial me uh, journey here, Dory? <laughs> well, you know, when it, when it comes to the reinvention process, I mean, I think that um, – 
the way that I that I often talk about it is that you know fundamentally it's a three step process, right? Step one is about identifying what your current brand is so you can have a sense of, of where you're starting. Number two is creating that vision, future vision for your brand so that you really know where you're aiming. And almost always this is going to present a necessary course of action because there's probably going to be a gap between where you are and where you want to be. And so you can begin to calibrate that and say, all right, what do I need to do? Are there skills I need to learn? Are there courses I need to take? Are there people I need to meet? Uh, you know, what, what are the things I need to do to get to that place? But then the part where I think a lot of people fall off or they, you know, they maybe get a little less disciplined is what I call living your brand, which is the final piece. Because reinvention is not uh, a one-time thing. You know, it kind of gets talked about that as like, oh, I reinvented myself into a photographer or into a whatever. But it's, it's, it's not like, oh, now it's done. Now it's locked down forever. And that's, that's what you are. You're constantly meeting new people, interacting with new people. And even with your existing people, they are forming continued impressions of you. So you have to make sure on an ongoing basis that you are living out your brand in such a way that that you're pretty darn sure that you are sending an aligned message, that you're sending the message that you want other people to get. And so it's, it's really understanding like, all right, based on who I am in the world now, what impression would people get? Uh, and so that's, that's the kind of thing that keeps you honest on an ongoing basis, you know? If you want to be known as a photographer, well, all right, maybe maybe you should have the Instagram account and share your photographs. If you want to, you know, be connected in a new world, you can't slack off on networking. You have to keep meeting people in that world and, and building your relationships. Now, when I hear these things, the um, the bullshit meter goes off for me. So, for example... One of the things I think people conflate is when you talk about your personal brand, um, I, I, th I see, a, let me say it this way. I had dinner, I was at an event, uh, I was at um, Hal Elrod's uh, and John Berghoff's uh, best year ever event recently. Unbelievable event. And, uh, you know, I met a lot of people there. I spoke and it was a really wonderful, a wonderful time. And, um, I, I had this conversation with this one gal and she was talking about her personal brand and what to do with it and this and that and the other. And I finally said to her, look, what you're doing is contrived. It's building a, like, I, I think the Kardashian ass selfie has crushed uh, what a lot of people think about. And so she's trying to contrive this image of herself. I said, what you don't want to do is do that. Your personal brand should be who you fucking are and what you fucking care about and the results that you can fucking produce. And, and then you build a reputation based on being who you are and delivering results as opposed to contriving of a brand and sort of acting in a sort of a douchebag Kardashian Hollywood, Gary V, Ty Lopez, uh, Grant Cardone way, right? Because those are those are all caricatures. Those aren't real people. And anybody, I think, with an IQ understands that those people are full of shit because they're acting, right? And so I guess this leads so this leads me to a question, which is how do I think about um, branding myself? but in a way that is real as opposed to something that's contrived that turns me into a Kardashian asshole. <laughs> well, it's an important point. I, I, think, I think you hit on something, which is that, you know, it doesn't bother me personally, but a lot of people are bothered even just by the term personal brand because it, to them sets off the wrong connotations, right? Like, like a product has a brand, you are not a brand. And, and I think it just, it just rubs them the wrong way. And so one of the things just from a kind of foundational framing perspective that I, I like to, uh, to really emphasize is that personal brand, I mean, you know, this is, this is a modern coinage, right? You know, this is a 20 year old term, uh, popularized by Tom Peters, the management guru, uh, from this fast company, uh, magazine cover from 1997. I remember it very well. 
Yes, yes, exactly. And so, you know, it made a big splash and that's how people talk about it now as a result. But fundamentally, I mean, we're not talking about like rocket science. It's not like a personal brand was invented in 1997. It didn't like fall out of the sky. Really, all it is, is it is a synonym for your reputation. And so I think that it is, you know, when we frame it that way, I think it makes a lot more sense to people because there's two ends of the spectrum, right? If you are the kind of navel gazing person that is constantly like, what do people think of me? What do they think of me now? Well, I mean, obviously that's pretty ridiculous and tedious, but on the other end of the spectrum, you can't be the person that's like reputation. Who cares what my reputation is? Fuck that. I don't, I don't even have a reputation. It's like, Come on, buddy. Yeah, you do. And a sensible person I, I tend person to fall into the it. third bucket, which is to quote Joan Jett, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, this is the thing that I love about what you're saying because um, I think a lot of people have gotten very confused that it's this contrived image that we're trying to create for ourselves that ultimately ends up coming across as very inauthentic as opposed to brand in the context of reputation, which is if who I am is somebody who's clear about what problem I solve, why that problem matters, how I'm different and how that different delivers real, meaningful, no bullshit value and results. Right. And I and I sharpen my saw to become that kind of a person then you build a brand then you and that brand is predicated on a reputation when we call dory we know good shit's gonna happen totally, totally. And, and we know what to call about and what not to call about and yes. and so that to me is what a real brand based on a real reputation is about as opposed to a contrived thing which is well what kind of bullshit quote should i put up on instagram you know yeah yeah exactly yeah, I mean, of course, we, we've all seen people who carry it way too far, but a lot of people let that be an excuse for them to say, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just rejecting all of this. I don't, I don't even need to think about any of this. It's stupid. But yeah. uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the moderation is the key here. Yes. It's, not, it's not a great idea for, for people to ignore it so much that they're like, oh, well, you know, yeah, nobody knows what I do, but, but oh, well. I mean, in the modern world, if nobody understands what you do, if they don't understand why you might be a better choice than other people, you're, you're kind of sunk. You, you can't just be a brilliant scientist. You yeah. can't. You, you will go unnoticed. And you, you're the difference, this is the positive side of it for me. If you're somebody who's committed to making a difference in the world through your work, whatever that work is, then at least half of what you do, whether you like it or not, needs to be letting the world know about the difference that you're trying to make and why that matters. It just has to be. We live in that level of noise. Now, you also, interestingly enough, write and talk a lot about sort of um, decoupling your, uh, or let me say it this way, creating multiple income streams and decoupling how you drive revenue uh, from your work. That is to say, if you're just a consultant or just a speaker, or, or in other words, you get paid to do something if, as opposed to I create something and that something goes ching, 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 right? I remember um, Keith Richards book. One of the things he talks about is, you know, he's making money 24 seven because every time they play satisfaction, he gets a check. Right? <laughs> yep. And so how do you think about sort of, um, having multiple revenue streams, some of which um, may require you to be present and do something, but others have an ongoing uh, royalty stream or income stream associated with them. Yeah, absolutely. I So first of all, just as a general premise, um, I am a big believer in having multiple income streams. And this is not, this is not something that, that kind of automatically happens. You have to put sort of time and thought into figuring out how to carve them out. But I believe that it is worthwhile for two clear reasons. One is as a hedge, because having been a reporter who got laid off, for instance, I understand very vividly, if you have one income stream, meaning a job, and that goes away, you have zero money. You have zero. And that's a very bad day in your life, right? <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. But meanwhile, now I'm at a point where because I do have multiple income streams, let's say a particular client leaves, let's even say a particular line of business ends. Let's say executive coaching is banned 
by, uh, you know, by some fiat, right? Okay, I'm not going to starve because I have other things that I that I'm getting money from, and knowing that is a is a really good position to be in. But of and, course, and the other reason is the upside. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a second. But consuming your content, the sort of aha. Um, that I feel like you're trying to communicate, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, is almost like uh, an investment portfolio. You wouldn't be 100% in stocks. You wouldn't be 100% in bonds. You wouldn't be 100% in real estate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You want to have a diversified portfolio so that when one's up, the other's down. And, and you know, you, you try to protect yourself and so forth and so on. And so you you build a moat through some level of diversification. Is is that the way I should think of it? Or how should I think of it, Dory? Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Exactly. I mean, people are really obsessed you know, pe- people who, who pay attention to finances are really obsessed with making sure that with the money that you have already earned, that you are diversified. But very few people put a lot of thought into diversifying on the way in rather than the way out. Yeah. And to your point, if you're somebody that's more, if I could say, service-based in your primary revenue stream or streams, when you can convert to products... Now you have an asset that might actually appreciate in value and or throw off income streams that can increase. You know, it's this concept of an increasing returns business. That is to say, we create something and as the demand for that something increases, the cost associated with it doesn't increase in a, in a connected or corollary kind of a way. You know, a book's a great example, right? You have a, a set of intellectual capital. People pay you to come and help them and you use that intellectual capital. But when you put it into a book, um, you, you are monetizing it in a way that it can scale. And so is that, is that how you think about it, that you should have services and, and, and products that are essentially monetizing you so that uh, you can scale and therefore uh, make uh, more money? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one of the key points. I mean, for me, a real epiphany came about three years ago. Um, I was teaching abroad. I was teaching in Central Asia. And I, I mean, it was, it was fun. It was cool. It was pretty lucrative. But I was flying back and I, I just taught for two weeks. I was exhausted from it. I was teaching, you know, in front of, in front of the class six hours a day, these business school students. And the whole time, literally the whole time I was there, I had a cold and I had to teach through the cold and I was just on the plane and I was uh, just like shivering and like, uh, okay, well, I made some good money. And, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of awful. And I just thought, oh man, you know, what if, what if it was that much worse? Like, what if, what if I could, if I had been so sick, I just couldn't have done it. And it really made me realize, okay, we're, you know, we're human. We are vulnerable. If there's, if there's an illness, if there's a problem, if someone you're care, you care for or care about has an illness or problem that takes you away from things, if you are only earning money by the sweat of your brow, that's a very dangerous position to be in. And so finding ways to diversify so that you can have a combination of making money through in-person physical activities, but also hopefully having some passive income streams, whether it's, it's online courses or a membership community or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, the membership very community valuable. is an, an interesting one to me. Um, when, when I was at uh, the best year ever event, it was uh, down in San Diego, there was another um, group there and uh, there were, a, and I love this term, a mastermind group. Yes. And uh, it was. I'm a leading of, a mastermind here in New York, uh, starting on Thursday. Yeah, and 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 like this is a relatively new thing that started. I think over. Well, I don't know how, how the, long have they been around as as the, we know them today. The the term and kind of the concept entered the popular lexicon actually in the 30s with Napoleon Hill with Think and Grow Rich. But you are correct that. It was talked about, but it kind of wasn't a thing. It's it's but only like these recently groups where you pay a hundred thousand dollars a year to like hang out with you know two hundred and fifty other big ding dongs. Like that's a relatively new phenomenon. That is a not? new thing. That is that is like, correct. I was talking Extreme to these, mastermind. Yeah, I was talking to these guys and they're like, oh well, you know, you have to have a net worth of blah blah blah, and you have to have a dick that's at least twelve inches long, and you have to have this, and you have to have that, and and it's a hundred thousand dollars a year, and then you got to pay to go to the things, and I'm like. 
wow, like how badly do people need to like, like, I don't know, make some friends and talk to them on the phone. Like, fuck it. This seems, but this phenomenon of people paying the very meaningful amounts of money to essentially hang out in a peer group. Yeah. 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 It's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite something. It must be a hell of a peer group. (laughs) All right, Dory, is there anything else I should think about as I, uh, reinvent and turn myself into a, um, entrepreneurial self? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, one other thing, Christopher, that I'll just, I'll just mention in case people are interested in it is that I I do have a free resource, which is the entrepreneurial you self-assessment. And it is 88 questions that actually walks you through how to think about creating multiple income streams in your own business. Um, So for anyone, anybody who wants to get that, you can download it for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thanks. All right. Anything else, Dory? No, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you. I I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, It's wonderful to meet you. Uh, I'm stoked for your success. And, you know, I think you come you come forward in the world at a time where a lot of people need this. You know, Um, uh, as you may know, entrepreneurship's at the lowest point in modern American history, according to the Brookings Institute. Wow, and, I did not know that. Oh, uh, it's stunning. I can send you the data if you want. It's it's a mind-blowing thing to think. Um, and so I think we're at a point in time where um, we just need more entrepreneurs. And um, I don't know if this was the case for you, but it certainly was the case for me. Um, you know, as a young man, I started my first business at 18, and, and entrepreneurship was not a way up in the world for me. It was a way out. And so I think the more personal responsibility we can take for our success and and do things to your point with multiple income streams and kind of take take ownership of our own uh, careers and paths and and um, and create success for ourselves, um, the better off we'll be as individuals. And frankly, um, you, you are showing up at a time where uh, particularly here in the United States, um, I think this is tremendously needed. So thank you so much for for joining me and for the work that you do. Hey, thank you so much. I'm so glad to get to connect with you, Christopher. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Whew, Dory Clark. I told you she was awesome. And man, I hope she comes back. Uh, I just can't say enough laudatory things about her. Now, are you still struggling with QuickBooks? Why, why, why would you want to do that? <laughs> are you tired of aging systems and fragmented reporting and disconnected technology and never-ending IT costs? Switching from QuickBooks to NetSuite empowers you to lower costs, streamline key processes, boost productivity, become more competitive, and have one uh, integrated system for managing every part of your business end-to-end, all of your key processes. No more juggling separate software. No more trying to figure out how to connect you know, your, your ERP, your inventory, your order management to your website. No more hairballs or on-premise crapola. No, with NetSuite, you get one powerful cloud application for every component of your business, including connecting your business to your website if you're selling stuff online. So check out netsuite.com slash different. And there you will be be able to set yourself up for a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. That's netsuite.com slash different. And if you want to find us, uh, we got an awesome website, uh, lockhead.com. And um, just so you know, uh, even if you subscribe to this podcast on one of the major players, uh, we don't know you're there. So if you want us to know you're there, when you're on lockhead.com, subscribe to our newsletter. And um, hey, we hardly email anybody. <laughs> so A, we won't over uh, overburden you with emails for sure. And B, we never sell your email address to anybody else. I don't care how much money they offer us. <laughs> and if you want to send an email to me and or the team, by all means, send us email at blackhole at lockhead.com. And if you want to find me on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at lockhead. All right. We would like to thank the amazing book by Dory Clark, Entrepreneurial You. Monetize your expertise, create multiple income streams, and thrive. Why not pick up a copy today? A podcast I love, the Mission Daily Podcast. This is a podcast for smart people who want to get smarter. Check it out. 
the number one Amazon bestseller, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, by Heather Clancy and myself. The amazing folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org. One Life Fully Live is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Now, if you want to be entrepreneurial or you're an entrepreneur, check out the place that entrepreneurs are um, consuming awesome content these days, growwire.com. And there you'll find amazing articles, a, uh, a YouTube channel, a podcast, and more. Growwire.com, stories of innovation. Now, um, are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Are you trying to, you want to outsource some stuff so that you can get, uh, you can focus yourself on high leverage activities? Maybe it's time to think, think about the power of a virtual assistant. Bottleneck Virtual Assistance is here to help you. Check out bottleneck.online today. And are you in Silicon Valley? Are you in the B2B space? Well, you need a website that can represent your company the way your best spokespeople do. And that's where Autranet comes in. They've been doing this for over 20 years. And talk about a niche down. They are focused exclusively on B2B websites for tech companies in Silicon Valley. Check out atre.net today. And the amazing folks at Habitat for Humanity. Habitat's vision is of a world where everyone has a decent place to live. Check out Habitat.org to make a difference today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. And we must inform you, clearly, this podcast goes way better with lig- libations. Ligations? I don't know what ligations are. Libations. I, I prefer them. Uh, remember to teach kids how to reinvent themselves. Support your local entrepreneurs. Fishing for a good time starts with throwing in your line. Don't forget to buy John's crazy socks. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Pre-I drivers, I'm talking to you. Thank you, Dandy Candy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of PG&E. Sorry, Dickie. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with me. And look forward to seeing you again soon. And until we're together again, follow your difference.